Amen. Let's pray as we stand, shall we? We stand, Lord, on every promise of your word. Uh, Your grace is sufficient for us. The work you've begun in us, you will indeed complete. And we pray that we may hear and know and understand and put our faith in those truths and in you this morning afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. If you'd like to grab a Bible again, turn back to that reading, Exodus chapter 15, page 72, if you've got the church red Bible, that's going to be really helpful. Well, football fans and rugby fans do it. Olympic athletes do it. Lovers do it. Even educated shower takers do it. Let's do it, says the Bible. Let's sing. Let's sing to the Lord. That's, of course, what I'm talking about, singing. Uh, It's always been something, singing, that Christians have loved to and have been famous for doing. Christian music's inspired uh, much of the world's music, actually, from Bach to the blues. Uh, The Bible in it has no fewer than 400 references to singing. And amongst those, 50 of them are direct commands, sing to the Lord. So the Bible says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't defraud. It also says, sing. In the middle of all that moral commandment, sing. Singing is very important uh, to the Christian life. There are dozens of songs in the Bible and different people singing them, many of them quoted for us, and there are, of course, as well, the Psalms, which are songs themselves. So as we look this morning at one of those songs in the Bible, Exodus 15, a little bit of background to this story, and then a little thought about singing. Early in Exodus, if you've joined us today, God sent his servant Moses back to Egypt to tell King Pharaoh, mighty King Pharaoh, to let his people go from their slavery. Israel had been in Egypt for some 400 years and recently in terrible oppressive slavery. To let his people go uh, is what Moses was told to say. And Pharaoh refused and, and a battle ensued between the power of the Lord and the power of Pharaoh. Always going to be only one winner to that, of course. But Pharaoh experienced nine terrible plagues upon his people and his nation and then a terrible final tenth where the firstborn of Egypt were wiped out one night and Israel were told now's the time up and go and they fled Egypt in the night but Pharaoh we saw last time in chapter 14 changed his mind about letting them go and got his whole army together to chase the Israelites and capture them again And it was only, as we saw in chapter 14, because the Lord, part of the Red Sea, led the Israelites through on dry land and then brought the waters of chaos crashing down on the Egyptians to drown the entire army that Israel was saved. Most of our reading is a song dwelling on, celebrating that destruction of the Egyptians and what it means. The the bare facts of the story are told again in verse 19, just very briefly, but it's almost all a song. And this song teaches us how God's people respond 
when he does a great work of salvation for us. How we respond rightly to what he's done. Uh, There are at least three ways that we'll touch on this morning. There are many others, but here are three this morning. How do we respond when God saves us, his people? And here's the first one, by rejoicing at his salvation. Rejoicing. Here are the Israelites. They stand on the shore of the Red Sea. They look back at the Egyptian bodies on the shore, at what God has done. And verse 1, Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. We wouldn't have thought that, would we? The first thing to do would be to sing a song, but that's what they do. I will sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted, verse 1. Both horse and rider, he's thrown into the sea. So here you've got in verse 1 this, this kind of, it may well be just the men referred to here, the male Israelites. Here you've got this kind of million-strong Israelite male voice choir singing in praise. But then if you look at verse 21, we see there's also a, a girl band. There's Miriam, isn't there? And her women friends, they're singing the song too. Same song, actually. Uh, But they've got tambourines as well, even better. In fact, some experts think that Miriam and her friends started the song and the Israelites then joined in and, and sang it with them. The women actually led here, quite possibly. But the point is, rejoicing at God's salvation is the first right response to what God's done for us. Singing in praise is a fitting way to respond to the Savior. And that pattern of God saving his people and his people singing in response is found throughout the Bible, from here through the Psalms to the book of Revelation at the very end. By praising God, as as verse 2 calls him, our strength, our defense, by praising God for saving us, protecting us. Uh, yes, we, we spread his fame. The world hears about it. The world heard about this after all, didn't it, pretty quickly. But we also honor his name. We honor his name. We spread his fame. Now, that said, singing is not essential to being a Christian. So if, you know, like me, you're not a particularly good singer or maybe you can't sing in tune at all, um, that does not mean that you're in any way a less worthy Christian or church member. The the preacher William Sangster, as he lost his voice through throat cancer in his last months of life, was asked one Easter by his family if he missed the chance to preach Christ and to sing his praise, and he asked for a pen and paper, and, and he wrote something. He wrote, It's better to have no tongue and a heart to shout, Jesus is risen than a tongue, but no heart to shout. So singing is not essential, nor is the style of the music actually essential that accompanies us. Um, They had tambourines, apparently, at the seaside there. We can praise God, can't we, with with gospel and guitars, and equally well with hymns and handle. Only one instrument is essential to sung worship, not the drums, not the organ, the human voice, if we have one. That's the only one we need. Because what matters to our singing in praise, if 
you look at Exodus 15, as we're going to do in a second, a bit more detail, it's responding to what God has done that matters. From our heart, with our voice. Our singing expresses an experience of God and what he's done. It's not intended to generate an experience. It it expresses what he's done. It's not trying to force him to do something. That means that the content of our songs is hugely important. Exodus 15, as I say, is going to help us with what sort of content is strong and healthy in a song. But contentless songs, songs that don't dwell on biblical truths of who God is, of what he's done, of what he will do for his people, they lead us actually away from Christ instead of towards him as songs should do. Songs which dwell on God's faithfulness, his power, his mercy, his majesty, they honor God and they build up the faith of those who sing them. So, if you know the joy already of being saved, I'm conscious that some people here this morning, some of us won't know that yet. We're still looking for that. But if you know that joy of being saved, I urge you with me this morning to join in when we sing. Even if you're not a great singer like I'm not, even if you don't wholeheartedly feel excited about every word you sing, join in. Because we respond to what God has done. Uh, This great little book came out last year called Sing. So that's quite on topic, isn't it? Sing. Um, By Keith and Christine Getty. Actually, Keith Getty co-wrote the song we've just sung, actually. uh, Always with, with great content in their songs. But this is a great book because it's both got a strong theology of singing, but also really practical content, including some, they call them bonus tracks, chapters at the end, Uh, for people who are musicians or lead gathered worship or are pastors or small group teachers. So have a look at that. It's great on singing in your own heart, in your family, and when we gather on Sunday. Um, I've got two of those this morning. It's so good, I'm going to give those two books away to someone that's going to use them and read them. So we respond by rejoicing. Secondly, we respond by remembering The song, just to break it down more now, really falls in two halves. Verse 12 is the break point. And the first half, about remembering, looks back. It remembers that Red Sea event when the Egyptians were drowned. The power of God, that's the big theme here. He is, verse 3, he's the saving warrior, defeating the powers of evil. His unique name which is given in Exodus in chapter 3, the Lord appears six times in those first six verses alone. In these verses, it's it's God who does everything. And if you notice, what do the Israelites do in these verses? Well, nothing. They are simply spectators. The Lord does it all. So verse... uh, Verse 1, verse 2, we've seen, he is my strength and defense. He is my God. Verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. Verse 4, he hurled the Pharaoh's chariots and his arms into the Red Sea. Verse 5, sorry, verse 6 onwards, it switches to the second person, addressing God as you and your, your right hand, Lord, verse 6. 
was majestic in power. Your right hand shattered the enemy. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. That means in, a, in, a, in an instant. Verse 8, by the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. And then verse 10, you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead. Now, I like the seaside. Carol and I swim in the sea in the summer when it's warm enough, whenever we can. The Bible sometimes uses the physical sea, though, as a symbol of the unruly, chaotic forces of evil trying to disrupt God's good, orderly creation. It's very striking here, isn't it, that God overcomes the force of evil personified by Pharaoh. We shouldn't sympathize with him too much anyway. He's a brutal man, but he symbolizes all the power of evil in Exodus. And God does that not by chariots and spears, but by raising up the waters of chaos and throwing them down to destroy the power of evil. That's the complete control of God, defeating evil. Martin Luther King put it this way about the death of the human soldiers in the Red Sea. He said, this story symbolizes the death of evil and of all inhuman oppression and unjust exploitation. We remember that when God saved us, he also destroyed evil. Broke the power of all that opposes him, the Lord, and his people. That pride of Egypt comes across in verse 9, doesn't it? See, the soldiers are breathlessly chasing, saying, I will pursue, I'll overtake them, I'll divide the spoils, I'll gorge myself on them, I'll draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. It's all I, 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 me, my, isn't it? And then one blow of God's breath, the next verse, and the house comes tumbling down, or the sea comes crashing over them. I remember back in verse 5, chapter 5, Pharaoh, when he heard about the Lord wanting his people free, said, who is this Lord that I should obey him? That's his pride again. Who is this Lord? But we see, don't we, in verse 11, the question is completely turned around now. Not any longer, who is the Lord? But God's people saying to God, who among the gods is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Who is like you? That's what we sing. When we look at what God has done, remembering his salvation. So actually the most important part of us, when we sing our songs, but actually in the Christian life, it's not even the voice, is it? It's the memory. Because we have to remember, not forget what God has done in order to stay faithful to him. Psalm 106, uh, as we're going to see actually in the next couple of weeks, that recounts how although God brought them through the Red Sea, they soon forgot. Remembering memory is a key Christian instrument to use. So, it doesn't matter whether we sing beautifully, but we need to sing faithfully the story. And I wonder how you plan to grow in your faith this year. 
If you do plan, I hope you do, and I do, to grow more like Christ in 2019, this song is saying, isn't it, don't go looking for a new version of the story, a new version of Christian faith of the gospel, and there are some former evangelicals around now who are doing this kind of thing, um, seeking to soften the gospel, but actually take, t- take the heart out, denying the cross, the uniqueness of Christ, the authority of Scripture. Don't look for a new, softer gospel, but remember and celebrate the old, old story. It's what this is saying, isn't it? A God who brought the waters down on the heads of Egypt and who brought his own son through the deep water of death and to victory the other side. That's the story we remember. That's why we gather each Sunday. It's why we gather in small groups and prayer focus. It's why we urge each of us to open the Bible each day. It's for our good that we remember. So rejoicing, remembering, we respond to what God's done. Thirdly, rehearsing. Rehearsing, that is, not what God did then, but what God now will do. Just as in our communion this morning, we look back at the cross where he died, but we also look ahead to the heaven where we'll gather around his feast. Rehearsing what God will do, which we trust in because of what he has done. All the action words in the second half of the song, we're now looking at verses 13 um, to 18, they all continue actually in the past tense, but because they all seem to refer to events that have not yet happened, so they, they haven't met the tribes, the foreign nations that are mentioned in that section, that are terrified of Israel, the Canaanites and so on, uh, because they haven't come to God's holy dwelling place yet, that probably does mean uh, Jerusalem and the temple, Almost certainly, they are future events, and so our translation, probably rightly, has put them in the future. You see that? Uh, Verse 13, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you've redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them. Verse 14, the nations will hear and tremble. 15, the chiefs of Eden will be terrified, and so on. By the power of your arm, verse 16, they will be still as a stone. Verse 17, you will bring them, that's God's people, in. That means almost certainly to the promised land and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance in Jerusalem, the place you made for your sanctuary, the temple. Future, rehearsing what God will do in the light of what he has done. And the story of Exodus is of how God's begun the salvation of his people, but actually it's not complete yet. You might remember, if you were here at the beginning, we reminded ourselves of the three great promises God made to Abraham for his people, the chosen people, that they would be his people in his place, the promised land, and under his rule, his kingdom, his blessing. And we've seen that they are his people, and they're growing numerous, and they're beginning to experience his rule and blessing. Just say at the end of our song, the Lord reigns, he always does, his kingdom is present. But they are not certainly yet, are they, in the promised land. So God has begun, but he has not yet completed their salvation. They're not where he promised yet. And so this song speaks in the future here 
with certainty, not because those things have already happened, because they've been set free from sin and evil. They're going to go astray quite soon, as we'll see next time. Not because they're perfect or they're free from any enemies. They've got to go through many trials and dangers yet. Not because they're in the promised land, but because it is so certain that they will be safe. They will be protected. He will lead them. He will guide them. He will plant them. That it's almost as if they've happened already. And in the original, they're in the past tense to say that. Does that make sense? You with me? That's a great encouragement for us, isn't it? That does mean that, as we sung just now, what God has begun, he will complete. If he has saved you and brought you into his kingdom, if you follow Christ, he will bring you through all the trials of this life, and there are many. He will bring his people through all our trials, and there are many, to what we call heaven. He will. It's rather like gardening, you know, if, if I leave a flower bed to go and get covered in weeds for a couple of years and it goes to seed and it's a complete mess and I, and I wait in when I say, I'm going to sort this out and I spend the whole day digging and digging and I start digging those weeds out and I clear it and I plant some nice fresh flowers and I finish the day and there's still three quarters of the work to be done. I could kind of go away and say, oh, well, that's it, I'll leave it now. But hopefully I won't, will I? I'll use that old phrase, <clears throat> I have started... And I say this to the flower, but I've started and I will finish. I'll come back tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And that's what God is saying. That's what Israelites are saying here as they look at the Red Sea. They look back and they say, well, because of what the Lord has done in destroying our enemies, he will lead us. He will terrify all that opposes us in the future. Each day that we walk and he will bring us to the promised land. Jesus promises in John 14 as he prepares to say well to his disciples at the Last Supper. He says, I'm leaving you, but I will go and prepare a place for you. And I will come back and take you to be with me. So that where I am, you will be also. And he is talking there. Yes, about how he will be with us and lead us each step of the journey in the trials of the Christian life. All the hostile things that face us, all that the world throws at us. But he's especially saying, I'm preparing a place in eternity, in the new creation, in the Father's presence. We sing to rehearse what God will do as we remember what he has done. So if you're feeling this morning the accuser telling you that the path of faith is too difficult for you, that the sins that you give into are too powerful, or if you're facing mortality and fearing what the future might hold, that death may still have the final say, know this morning that Jesus has gone ahead. He is with you every step of the Christian life. He will bring you to the end in safety. He'll plant us and lead us in to God's eternal inheritance. Our future, you see, rests as Christians, as a church, uh, not on what we do, but on what God our Saviour will do. Uh, Churches don't grow by shiny new programs and more palatable versions of the gospel. We grow by prayer. 
as we trust in the almighty power of God to bring us safe home. So as I finish, we respond to God's salvation, don't we? We've seen by rejoicing that we've been saved, by remembering how God has saved us, as we do in the communion this morning, but also by rehearsing with confidence what God will do. So will you join me in praying this morning and always that because we rejoice in and remember what God has done, and whenever we face fears and trials, that we will trust in the Lord to lead us, to guide us, to defeat our enemies, and finally to bring us in to his eternal presence forever. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will indeed help us to remember always the story that matters, the story of Jesus and of his death and resurrection, of his eternal reign and final return. Help us to rehearse what he will do in us and for us, both in this life and in eternity. And may we sing this morning in the songs we have remaining, but also in our hearts, rejoicing that you are indeed our defense, our mighty warrior, our savior. In Jesus' name we pray and sing. Amen.